0: Well, I have to admit something. I didn't really want to write this platform. Not this week when the trees are beginning to shed their blossoms for green leaves and the last of the cherry trees are in bloom. Not this month when so many of our sister congregations are celebrating holidays of liberation and rebirth. And not this year, when the District of Columbia has taken a huge step forward in the fight for justice with the legalization of same-sex marriages. And anyway, I like happy topics. I like talking about community and love and the Earth's seasons. Uganda's anti-gay bill with provisions for capital punishment? No thanks. Unfortunately, it's not just that I don't want to talk about this bill, it's that I don't want there to be this bill. And although I usually shy away from making generalizations about how this congregation feels about things, I bet I'm in pretty safe territory to say that you are all likely to agree with me. In fact, most of America, I think, agrees with me, even folks that don't agree with me on marriage equality or non-discrimination laws to protect transgendered people or any of the other LGBTQ rights that I work toward. Most of America, though, is on board with the idea that at any rate we shouldn't be killing people who are gay and we shouldn't be jailing their supporters. And I'm sorry to tell you that that's what the bill says. I read the entirety of the proposed legislation for this platform because in an age of media sound bites and viral videos, I think it's important to see what the real facts are. First of all, homosexuality is already a criminal offense in Uganda. This bill would make the punishments more severe in some cases and would extend criminality to people who are supporters of gay folks, who, for instance, rent rooms to them, provide medical support to them, or even just know who they are and don't turn them in to the government. The bill would require a parent to report his gay child to the government or face criminal charges. The death penalty could specifically apply to what is termed in the bill aggravated homosexuality, which includes things like homosexual acts with a minor, homosexual acts when one person is HIV positive, and repeated homosexual acts, called being a serial offender in the legislation. So this is not legislation that I like, not legislation that I would want to see passed, but then no one is asking me to. This legislation is before the Ugandan Congress, not ours. Is it really any of our or my business what another country on another continent halfway around the world does? For me, that question is an important one, and more interesting, actually, than a lot of debate about the legislation itself. I can sum up my feelings about the bill in one word, appalled. But American intervention in another country's legislative process, a little bit trickier. My ideas about the whole thing are made more complicated by the fact that I'm a financially affluent, educated white American, pretty high up there in the list of most privileged people in the world. And I'm commenting on legislation in a country in Sub-Saharan Africa, which ranks 157th out of 182 countries ranked in the UN's Human Development Index. I try in all my justice work to keep track of the lens of privilege and racism And this situation calls out for me to examine my thoughts carefully. What right do I, unfamiliar with Ugandan culture, and obviously outside of the Ugandan political system, have to comment on a Ugandan decision? I might abhor the decision, but then the logic could go, I shouldn't move to Uganda. I'm not the only one who struggles with this idea, I imagine, or who struggles in general with American imperialism of ideas, the sense that we always know best what other countries ought to be doing. It's easy enough to feel that sense of righteous indignation when we see the world behaving in ways that we find unacceptable. But how ethical, or frankly successful, are we when we let the indignation guide us? And if that's not the guide, then what is? I first started wondering about these questions in earnest, just as a idealistic and earnest myself, high school student. Raised as a feminist, I didn't begin to understand what women's rights looked like or didn't look like in other countries until my mid-teens. At some point, the issue of female genital mutilation, or FGM, rose to my consciousness. Well, this platform address is really hitting good topics today, isn't it? It's nice, we've just brought in FGM, too, so I hope you're enjoying that. At any rate, I began to think about this idea as a teenager, struggling with both my clear belief that FGM was wrong was harmful to women, was an unacceptable way to treat the bodies of young girls, and my learning that the practice had strong cultural and sometimes religious roots, that it spoke to a long tradition and held an important place in the cultures that practiced it. So how could I have an opinion about it? And what would make my opinion effective, anyway? Taken too far, this kind of thinking can descend into moral relativism. The idea that there are no moral absolutes, that ethics is entirely culturally dependent, and that what might be absolutely right for one group of people could be completely wrong for another. Moral relativism is dangerous because it keeps us from taking ethical stands at all, keeps us from asserting ourselves when we see injustice in the world. But the idea behind it, the concept that we might not know everything about a culture's moral choice, is a good one. To begin, it reminds us that hubris is dangerous itself. It helps us to remember that we are not alone in the world, but that we share it with people who have different experiences and different worldviews. And, perhaps most importantly of all, it helps us to actually make change, rather than leaving us to smolder in our righteous indignation while the rest of the world goes on doing what it wanted to do anyway. More on that later. First, a little bit more on the Ugandan bill and how it came to be. This part is interesting and scary and I think actually shifts my thinking a bit about American intervention. Because as it turns out, American intervention was there all along. A number of people point to American evangelical ministers as the inspiration behind this proposed legislation. Martin Sesempa, a Ugandan fundamentalist pastor, is largely seen as the guru of the bill. Sempa is important within Ugandan politics, He serves on the National Task Force around AIDS prevention there, and also has strong ties to America, testifying before the US Congress about the African HIV AIDS epidemic, and associated with Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, keynoting, in fact, at a conference that that church led on AIDS in Africa. And so the plot thickens. In fact, it gets even thicker, ultimately turning into what would be a great novel in the Da Vinci Code line if it weren't so real and so scary. Two of the main legislators behind the Ugandan bill, David Bahati and Ethics Minister Nsaba Buturo, are part of the Ugandan version of The Family, an evangelical Christian group that started here in the States and that works with politicians to provide support and to lobby them on conservative causes. You might have heard of the American version of the family in connection with the C Street House they run right here in the district, where members of Congress who they identify as key men can stay, and for the involvement of some of the family's politicians in major scandals recently, including Senator Ensign and Governor Sanford. The family is also the sponsor of the National Prayer Breakfast, which happens in early February every year. As a note, I want to say that most of my information about the family, which is relatively closed about its work, comes from Jeff Charlotte, who recently wrote a book about the group having infiltrated its C Street living quarters. So here we have some of the top Ugandan officials connected with this American-run, or at least American-conceived, organization, as well as with individual American pastors. As you can imagine, these connections started raising some eyebrows when they were uncovered in the last year. And I'm sorry to say that they do indeed play into the left's worst paranoid fears about really conservative religious folks. So I have been interested to see how some of the American pastors would respond. And I'm glad then to share with you the ultimate response of Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church, that church that sponsored the conference where Martin Semba spoke. Warren apparently started distancing himself from Semba in 2007, two years before this legislation was introduced. But, of course, he did get rather a lot of questions about the relationship in this past year. Here is what Warren eventually said in a statement directed to Ugandan church leaders, as quoted in Time magazine in December 2009. As an American pastor, he said, It is not my role to interfere with the politics of other nations, but it is my role to speak out on moral issues. This bill is unjust, extreme, and unchristian toward homosexuals. Now, I don't want to misrepresent Rick Warren as a supporter of LGBTQ rights. (laughs) His statement went on to say, we can never deny or water down what God's word clearly teaches about sexuality. Let me be clear that God's word states that all sex outside of marriage is not what God intends. At the same time, the church must stand to protect the dignity of all individuals, as Jesus did and commanded all of us to do. Now, I might say that if Reverend Warren doesn't want sex outside of marriage, then he ought to join our fight for marriage equality. <laughs> but I'm guessing it's not exactly what he has in mind. At any rate, Warren's response helps me to think more clearly about my own response, about what the appropriate And effective American response might be to a bill like this. Because here is what Warren does in his statement that I like. He acknowledges that this is not his country's bill, not his piece of legislation to change. He affirms though, too, his role as an ethical and spiritual guide, and the possibility that this role reaches across national boundaries, to a kind of guiding of our shared humanity. And in a way that perhaps only someone uniquely tied to the creators of the bill could, he speaks the language. He acknowledges the fear and the underlying values that the bill seeks to address. As I prepared for this platform, I spent some time talking with two people. Martha Galahue, the ethical culture leader who works with our National Service Conference and with the United Nations, and Jane Connor, a nonviolent communication trainer who recently spent time in Uganda working on a conflict resolution project and who engaged to some extent while she was there in the national conversation around the bill. Martha helped me to understand some of the international context for the bill the various ways that different countries are legislating around LGBTQ issues right now. And she reminded me that we need to look at any social justice issue from this lens, understanding that our own views on something may be limited by our cultural bias, and that even American legislation comes within the context of the international community and international human rights values. My conversation with Jane was a helpful one, too. Speaking out of her nonviolent communication training, she talked about the importance of looking for the basic human needs that underlie even ideas that we find abhorrent. So often, she told me, what I see in the human rights debates are good guys and bad guys. That frame, she thinks, isn't always a helpful one. The question instead could be, as she spoke it, how do we love people even when they're doing things that are contrary to the things that we cherish? Now this is definitely, as I understand it, nonviolent communication language. It's also, it seems to me, religious language. One of the core principles of ethical culture is our insistence on the inherent worth of every person. That idea is behind most of our social justice stands. For me, it's certainly a part of my work for LGBTQ rights. But what about the inherent worth of the people who work against our work? What about, in this case, the inherent worth of the writers of that Ugandan legislation, the legislation that part of me absolutely says is wrong, is worthy of my repugnance? Are the people worthy of that, too? Are they wrong in some fundamental way? Or is there a way that I can understand a human characteristic, a human hope or fear that we share? There's a story that helps me to believe that I can, to believe that starting with a respect for those whose actions we may find appalling, can actually be the best way to get their actions to change. A story that gives us a way to imagine working within our values, but without imposing them. I wish I could tell you where this story is from, but I heard it at a leader's retreat, and I haven't been able to find the source. And I'm sorry to tell you that it brings us back to that topic of female genital mutilation. This story is about a small village in Africa, where women were routinely cut in order to make them desirable brides. The older women in the village, the elders supported this cutting because getting married was central to the livelihood of their daughters and nieces and granddaughters, and they cared about their girls and wanted to do whatever they could to ensure that they would marry well. It must have been tempting for Westerners wanting to work with the women of this village to come in with a no-cutting program. It would have been tempting for me, that's for sure. Instead, they brought in a literacy program aimed especially at girls. Among the readings they offered the girls to read were ones that included general information about health. Among the general information about health, were some citations about how cutting increased the likelihood of death during childbirth. Within a year, this story goes, girls who had been cut started having trouble getting married. And the village women began to direct their daughters and nieces and granddaughters not to be cut because, you know, they cared about their girls and they wanted to do whatever they could to ensure that they would marry well with no anti-FGM conversations, no commentary on the issue at all, the literacy program had given the community the information that they needed to make their own decisions, decisions which gave them a different way to fill their need to care for their girls and women. Now, what does this mean for the Ugandan bill? I don't think the answer is as easy as a literacy program. There are strong religious values involved, some deep-seated fear and hatred, and plenty of the ugliest kind of bigotry. The Washington Post's January editorial called the proposed legislation barbaric, and I imagine some of you might agree. If that word didn't conjure up quite so many images of Western colonialism, I might be there too. But if I try to look beyond, or perhaps behind, my initial recoil from the bill, I begin to see, just to glimpse, some of the feelings, the needs behind it. I can tell you easily what the legislation makes me feel deeply. Fear for the safety of the gay population in Uganda and for their allies, Fear for what this proposed legislation could inspire in other countries. If I stretch though, if I really stretch, I can begin to imagine what might be playing in the minds of those who support the legislation. Fear of a changing world. Fear for the safety of their children. The legislation seems to conflate homosexuality and pedophilia a dangerous misperception, which is unfortunately not uncommon. A desire to maintain what they see as traditional values in a world where the West seems to be constantly encroaching. There's a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Uganda, started six years ago by Reverend Mark Kiyimba, a Ugandan minister who wanted to create a place that would welcome all people regardless of gender, race, and sexual orientation. It's one of the very few churches in Uganda that's taking a stand in support of LGBTQ rights. And of course, it's taking that stand at great risk to itself and to its people. This February, on Valentine's Day, the congregation sponsored a conference for people to come together and talk about how to defeat the legislation. How to support the gay community and its allies in Uganda. A Unitarian Universalist minister from All Souls in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Ugandan congregation's American partner church, flew to Uganda that weekend to stand by Reverend Kyimba when he spoke at the conference. For me, there's something that feels right about this kind of American intervention this kind of American witness to the horror of another country's political situation. First, because it's born of relationship between the two ministers and their congregations. And then, because it's Western support of a homegrown Ugandan response to the proposed legislation. Some of my discomfort around swooping into an international situation dissipates, and I feel stronger in my ability to stand on my own convictions. Knowing of this relationship, I feel other members of the Unitarian Universalist Association can give their support to that Ugandan congregation, can add their voices to those crying for justice. The Ugandan bill, from what I can tell, is still before their legislative body. Thanks to international pressure, including President Obama's condemnation, which came in December, the Ugandan president has said that he won't sign the bill if the death penalty remains as one of the proposed punishments. So it's likely to just include life in prison. International attention to the bill has waned as the media turns its attention to the next big story. It seems in some ways inevitable that Uganda will indeed make the penalties for homosexuality steeper, sharper than they have been. A high percentage of Ugandans support the legislation, according to most polls. It might be easy to write the whole country off as backward. But then there's the Ugandan UU congregation and its members there, risking their livelihoods and perhaps their lives to turn their country around. No doubt there are others, many others in Uganda, who are also horrified by the legislation. Of course, there are all the Ugandans who do support the legislation, and who are just people like us, too. People who are worried or scared, or who feel disenfranchised or left out. For me, the question isn't just how to change the proposed legislation, but how to change their hearts and minds, too. Or rather, how to enter into the kind of engagement that might allow their hearts and minds to change of their own accord. This platform wasn't any easier to write than I expected it would be. I'm still not quite sure where I come out on all of this when I think we must draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is enough, this is unacceptable in the realm of human rights, and when we need to step back and examine our motives and instead encourage a literacy program and hope that people find the reading material compelling. I hope I can find some middle road between moral relativism and ideological imperialism some place where respect is at the heart of even my most righteous indignation. Because it's only then that real engagement and dialogue can take place. When I get there, I'll let you know. Until then, I'll try to remember my religious values, the ones that make me joyously love gay and straight together, and the ones that challenge me to love oppressed and oppressor together.